J. Stuart Blackton, D.W. Griffith, Sergei Eisenstein, Lenny Griefenstahl, all in their own great and terrible ways demonstrated the growing power of the moving image to provoke powerful and often radical emotions. Images have power. Images can move minds. It can turn public attitudes on governments. It can shift international discourse. But can also be misused, weaponized to empower the vile and reactionary. Film may be true to 24 frames a second, but if that is the case, then it only takes a few snips of celluloid to alter reality. The interpretation of art is by its very nature subjective. However, it's often the case, especially now, that we, each observer from our own distinct vantage point, treat our particular interpretation as objective fact. And while a work of art's meaning can shift with the changing of the culture that surrounds it, the actions taken by those inspired by their self-determined, objective interpretation often cannot be changed. They remain fixed points in time, creating undeniable consequences of a medium whose meaning can often never be described as undeniable. Sometimes it feels easy to draw that line. Surely J.D. Salinger never meant anyone to shoot a musician in cold blood when he penned his most famous book. Just the same, it feels fairly safe to dismiss the aforementioned Riefenstahl's claim that her work was purely documentary and not absolve her of her role in the Third Reich's machinery. But often, the question of intent in art is far murkier, and indeed the very question of whether intent outweighs impact has no clear answer. However, the mind is more powerful than the image. No one believes their own eyes as objective truth 24-7, and particularly at 24 frames a second. We greet images that don't meet our own perceptions with skepticism, those that do as affirmation of truth, and those that are abstract are often projected with whatever intentions we'd previously decided it had. And most powerful of all is the mind made to conjure its own images, to imagine the enemy in the dark, the monster in the closet, and the vilest intentions of those minds we do not know. John Ford knew that, which is why he repurposed German and Japanese propaganda films for his own prelude to war. Only by forcing Americans to confront those images could his efforts have any advantage over the audience's imagined perception that the enemy was either innocent or insurmountable. Images have power, but our own minds can conjure far more powerful images than any camera can capture. And as a result, while two people who look at the same abstract painting can walk away with two different ideas of the meaning behind each splash of red across an otherwise barren canvas, we so often hear debates between those who've never seen the painting who talk wildly of how those splashes of paint obscure some idyllic landscape, or how the splashes of paint are sky blue or pine green. And in effect, it's those debates that give works of ignorance, or those otherwise innocuous or indeed inept, far more power than the act of actually looking ever could. I can't promise we will always be right, if anyone can be. Nor to fully divorce ourselves from our own experiences, which so often affect interpretation but I can promise that with every work on this list, we will not shy away. We will not stand outside the museum, sight unseen, and shout at stone walls. We will learn what we can from artists, peers, and scholars, and have as frank and honest a discussion as we can. And what we can do, what we can promise, is always to look. Tomorrow is another day. But today, we're discussing Gone with the Wind with special guests Lupita Mendez-Jones and Justin Jones. Hi, everybody. We are joined this episode 
by uh, Justin Jones and Lupita Mendez Jones. They're two friends of mine I was, I was happy to bring on. Uh, Justin Jones is a, is a freelance entertainment writer. We all used to work together at a, at a movie theater, and some of my favorite times, I, I, I worked downstairs with Justin, and uh, Lupita worked upstairs, and, and you know, Justin and I would argue about uh, movies as two people do when you put them in the same spot for long enough and their brains are equally broken. But um, the best times, the best times would be when Lupita would kind of sneak downstairs for a bit just to say hi, ask what we were talking about, and Justin would just go, oh, we're arguing about blank. And then you would watch as Lupita would be like checking her watch, being like, can I get away with this? And then just like stick around to also argue a point. And it was so much fun. Um, and so I knew uh, when we were starting the show, I, I wanted I wanted both you guys on. Um, I hope you guys don't mind sharing an episode. I, I can promise you, uh, you know, down the line, if you guys want to, you know, split and, you know, somebody wants to take uh, one and the other, you know, you're welcome to. But I'm, I wanted to have you guys both on for this because I always enjoyed that interaction. Oh, of course. It was in our wedding vows. Like whenever you do a podcast episode, we I also do a podcast episode. Or bonded for life. Bonded for life. I had asked you pretty early on if you guys wanted to come on and I sent you the list uh, of what uh, we had available in this season. It was it was almost every film on there, and uh, you know a couple of ones that were touchy. This was, I think, maybe you know shortly after all of the uh, most recent uh, conversations about uh, the film in question, and so I wasn't sure who was going to pick what. And I was I was admittedly uh, surprised that that you guys volunteered for this one, given its its status. So I'm I'm excited to get into that and excited to hear why you guys um, picked that. So to kick this off. I'm going to read the National Film Registry statement as to why Gone with the Wind was inducted into the registry in the inaugural class. As one of the most popular and influential American films produced, Gone with the Wind remains possibly the definitive example of filmmaking in the Hollywood studio era. More than seven decades after its release, David O. Selznick's production, coupled with Margaret Mitchell's best-selling story, still has the power to enthrall audiences. A rich score by Max Steiner and top performances from Vivian Lee, Olivia de Havilland, Hattie McDaniel, and Clark Gable add to the film's indelibility. So that's what they had to say. Now, I'm curious, guys, you know, without getting into too much of the, you know, the meat and potatoes of it, what made you guys pick this film? Well, Gods of Egypt wasn't available. Okay. <laughs> Hasn't reached the 10-year requirement uh, for the registration. <laughs> Give it time. Well, like well, like I, Justin for sure did not want to do Gone, Gone with the Wind. I was the one really pushing it because we also saw like Singing in the Rain and Snow White. And like one thing that Justin and Mike really bonded over at working at the movie theater was just like our love of Disney and like musicals. And we were like, oh, that's like a shoe in. And I was like, well, we haven't, both of us haven't really seen Gone with the Wind. I think it'd be really interesting for us to see it to fill that hole in our movie history. And also like, we're both from Texas. We need to, like, we just need to, our perspective would be very interesting. You as growing up as like a white man in Texas, me growing up to like, like a Mexican American in Texas. I did. Like, I just think it'd be so interesting. My favorite part about that is that when I messaged Justin shortly thereafter, he wrote back and I believe the initial message made it sound like you guys were both like immediately, this is what we want to do. Did not realize there was, there was debate over that, which makes it uh, all the more fun. (laughs) I'm glad you picked it. Uh, the thing with this film, which we're going to get into, is there is so much to talk about with it. And not just in terms of, you know, oh, the the debate around it, but particularly the film itself. And I find one thing when we talk about movies is uh, I, I 
I have a particular <laughs> belief, which is I'm I'm welcome to somebody having an opinion on a film as long as they've seen it. And I feel like this is certainly one of those films that gets uh, talked about more than it gets watched. And how much of that is because of just the insurmountable length of it? How much of that is because of various reputations? Uh, I don't know. But it's a it's a weird f- kind of anomaly that sort of saturated the culture and was omnipresent until it wasn't. But I feel like for me growing up, it was it was part of the canon and it was just a thing that we all knew. I mean, they were making Gone with the Wind Barbies and they were, you know, I mean, I remember seeing the however many it was like four VHS tape set in like any house you went to. It was just a staple the same way that Casablanca was or or Lawrence of Arabia was. Right. I feel like now setting aside the debate about the the depictions in it or or the politics of it it just is not part of the discourse the same way and mm-hmm. part of or if it is it sort of sits in the canon like this brick there that people are aware is there and you know and and kind of recognize or at least acknowledge that it is considered a great film but don't actually watch it or engage with it or have any experience with it I mean, you guys mentioned that you guys hadn't seen it. Tom, I know this was your first time watching it as well. Yeah, first time for me too. Yeah. I don't know. It it, it kind of doesn't feel like it hasn't left the conversation. I feel like, I mean, the context around the conversation has changed, but it feels like ev- like we're still always talking about this movie. I mean, even when it wasn't, you know, growing up a film lover, it's not a movie that you don't, that's never not in your consciousness. So... I don't know. As for a movie that's taken such a, I don't know, right turn in how it's received, it's still just always talked about. I, you know, just it's always there. I think that's fair. Allow me to rephrase. I, I guess what I mean is that it was the kind of movie that every single person of our grandparents' generation saw and had uh, a, a relationship with and a reference to, and and pretty much every one of our parents' generation saw, and yeah. the. It does. It no longer has a place of something that needs to be seen. It doesn't occupy the place, I guess, of say, you know how we all, because we read it in school or what have you, we all know The Great Gatsby. We can all make references to The Great Gatsby. We all still get references to The Great Gatsby. Yeah. And I wonder if when people a little younger than us watch an old Looney Tunes or something and hear a reference to Tomorrow is Another Day or I'll Never Go Hungry Again, if if they know what that is from the same way we do, where even if we hadn't seen the film, we picked up from osmosis like, oh, these important moments from this movie or these these, uh, you know, uh, pop culture references or if they just if it doesn't have that same cachet now. So in in Texas, I don't I, I can't speak for like the whole rest of the Deep South, but in Texas, Gone with the Wind is still like revered. Yeah, we went to. Uh, the University of Texas, and while among, like, college cultures, there is sort of this uh, desire to put up a bar between your enjoyment of this movie from your respect for it, pretty much everyone everywhere, this is, like... It's ingrained in the culture. Yeah. My, I I think Fathom Events or one of those places did a screening, and my whole family went and saw it. Uh, That was before I was 
going to the movies, I think, was when I was younger. But my whole family saw it, and it made, it like, a huge impact on them, and they loved it. Particularly, like, and it's, and it's important to say, like, the women, the especially women. in your family. Right. Because, ju- like, Justin's, like, family comes, especially, like, your, your, your mom's side comes from this, like, Dallas socialite kind of society, like, deep south, like, glamorous. So I think... It, even though they may not be like Gone with the Wind's my favorite movie, they it's like embedded in the culture, right? Right. Yes, I would say it is a foundational text of of Texan culture. Yeah, it's even though it's, even though it's not Texan at all. Yeah, it's Georgia. Yeah. Now uh, that's interesting. You bring that up. If we could just uh, you know before we get into the film more in depth. Given your background, could you give us a little more uh, information on, on not just your background, you know, regionally, but also what brought you guys to movies, you know, and, and, and your interest in cinema? Because, Justin, you mentioned you weren't going to the movies back then. So what what's that relationship? I think it was just because I was a little baby boy. Um, <laughs> I'm the youngest of my siblings, so the, probably it was just my siblings were older than me. But the thing that really made me latch on to movies was actually deciding to watch every Best Picture nominee from every year with Lupita. In high school. In high school. And trying to figure out how to say that I didn't like a movie that was considered one of the best of the year. And then that just led me down the rabbit hole. Yeah. For for me, like, that was a big part of me, like, like liking movies that were, like, currently coming out. But I also had an older brother who was, like, 10 years older than me who was, like, showing me movies I was probably way too young to see, but also showing me 12 Angry Men whenever I was in middle school, and, like, that, for some reason, clicking with me and being, like, black and white movies are really interesting. Like, they are cool. Like, why is everybody not talking about this? Why are they only focused on, like, the Pokemon movie that's coming out on Cartoon Network? <laughs> Mike. I do <laughs> I, no, no. Uh, no, 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 he's right to call that out. I just did, it'll be out for months by the time this episode comes out, but I just did an episode of Podcast Like It's 1999 about Pokemon, the first movie, and in preparation. You watched all of them? I did. I watched all 24. Um, I didn't have to do that. Oh my gosh. Mike's commitment to a bit is unparalleled. It's, I, I, I wish it was a fully a bit but it was kind of also a bit of like i know look we we're we're writers we've dealt with comment sections before and uh you know we've uh, justin i've written for the same publication at one point and we know how that comment section could be if you get one little detail wrong so it's so ingrained it's so ingrained in my brain of uh if i did not have the pull of mewtwo reappears in the adventure of genesect or something that somebody would come uh screaming at me I also think this is the first time that Gone with the Wind and Pokemon, the first movie, are invoked in the same podcast. So I think we... we pulled something I don't know. There. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, Pokemon's also about slavery. <laughs> it actually it is. Uh, no, it is. It is, uh, you know, except that one has a has a, an uprising. Um, but yeah, so and you guys are you guys are from you're both from Texas originally. Yeah, we, yes. we both grew up uh, in the Dallas. In Irving. In Irving, Texas. Former, former home, home of, of the, the Dallas, Dallas Cowboys. Cowboys. That was not planned. <laughs> and uh, and you have moved, and and obviously you guys have since moved uh, to New York, where we are, right? Are you still there yes. now, or did you? Yes, we live in Bushwick still. We are here oh, to stay. Fantastic. Yeah, our fantastic. trajectory, like, was like grew growing up in Dallas, moved to Austin for college, stayed there for a year or two, and then found our way to Brooklyn. 
in in that regard, you know, you've talked about the the difference between the reception of Gone with the Wind here and there. Uh, have you noticed? I mean, obviously, surely you've noticed differences in not just how we do things here, but I'm I'm sure in how we sort of perceive and respond to history in in, in compared from Brooklyn to to uh, Irving, right? Yeah, right, for sure. I mean, there is. I grew up in Irving, where I grew up. I worked. We went to a really, really diverse high school, and it was actually very progressive. But yeah. I, I worked and hung out with a bunch of people that would go to these very, very segregated high schools and these very segregated parts of town. I had coworkers who had like Confederate flag wallets, and so in terms of reaction to history, I don't think you could make it to the subway stop with a Confederate flag wallet in Brooklyn, <laughs> but. In, in Irving, it's just, that's, that's the thing that people do. That is how you honor the past. And frankly, I much prefer the, uh, the, the, the fuck history attitude of, uh, of Brooklyn. Of Brooklyn. Can I cuss? Yeah, please. By yes. all means. I, I will say this. I think that what's so interesting, particularly about this, this film, I, in doing research for this, it is amazing how many takes you read that are so determined to find a particular attitude in this film or, or a particular point in this film, you know, a particular message. Mm -hmm. And if anything, while I have my read on the film, and I think we all have our reads on the film, this is a movie that is near impossible to definitively say this is what it's saying and not just because you know it was any abstract intentions but but rather you come from a book margaret mitchell's book that has a very definitive point of view but then david o selznick takes the book and he decides he's going to change things from the novel he starts out saying that his intention is that he wants to make sure that uh no people of color are offended by the film and he starts talking to Walter White of the NAACP. And that's the story that you hear from some people when you read it is, oh, Selznick was in communication with Walter White of the NAACP. But when you dig into it, there's also that element of some of the advice he got from the NAACP, he took under advisement and went, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And then other times when they said something he didn't want to do, he just went, you know what, never mind, I'm just going to keep doing it. So it's not as cut and dry there. But then you have a film that George Cooker is directing originally and comes from the vantage point of uh, one of the few fairly openly gay directors in Hollywood of the time. And I know that Olivia de Havilland and Vivian Lee loved working with him because he was very focused on the woman's part of the story. Mm -hmm. And then he is replaced midway through for reasons that no one has properly nailed down by Victor Fleming, who is very much a man's man director, uh, you know, that Clark Gable wanted. And he makes Rhett more of the focal point of the film. And then by that point, you know, after a while, a third director comes in and Selznick was directing some scenes himself. And so by the end, there are, I mean, cinema is always a collection of points of view. You know, the auteur theory kind of ignores the fact that so many other people have input. But particularly this film is coming from so many different vantage points. And so many different, I think, stances on the very conflict the film is is based on. A very hard movie to ascribe a singular intent on, particularly when it comes to, I think, what George Cooker wanted the film to say, and then what Victor Fleming wanted the film to say. Release the Cooker cut? Is that anything? <laughs> <laughs> 
it is HBO Max, so you know. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It is. I, I think that's that's interesting um, to me that that we have. You know, par- I think that's part of the thing with this movie. And there are, you know, I, I was starting to say that recently uh, a screening of Kindergarten Cop was canceled, and <laughs> the person who canceled the screening said, "You could say it's just a movie." You know, in regard to um, the completely justified reevaluation we are all having about the depiction of police and law enforcement in film and television, which is a real discussion that is not only necessary, but justified. But in reaction to that, this person canceled kindergarten cop screening. And when pressed on it, they said, you could say it's just a movie, but you could say that Birth of a Nation is just a movie or Gone with the Wind is just a movie. And I felt like that sentence to me indicated I'm not sure you've seen either of the films you're referencing. Right. Yeah. In in part the one because you canceled. Yeah, because to me like it comes down obviously to a question of does intention matter when it comes to, you know, the impact of a work of art, but I I do think there is a difference between a movie like Gone with the Wind that is hard to pin down and I think at the very least irresponsible in the images it it depicts versus something like Birth of a Nation, which we'll have to cover in a couple seasons, which is a movie that is undeniably designed with hate and designed to convey a very particular message of hate and intolerance. And I think that it is important to discuss this film, Gone with the Wind, and how difficult it is to kind of ascribe a singular viewpoint in rather than write it off by what we've decided that the film is about, I think. Because I'm, I'm certain that it's possible that we each have different takes on different scenes in this thing. It is a very... It's a hard one to wrap your head around in a lot of ways. What makes Gone with the Wind so like hard to like like grapple with as a film because of course it is disgustingly racist. It is so misogynistic. It paints like like they want you to think Scarlett O'Hara is like this like huge feminist whenever she really is just kind of like a whiny little brat. But like the movie itself is just so production wise it's just so beautiful you like halfway through we were like why do we care about what they're what they're talking about it's because the performances are just so great and like that i think gone with the wind does something really good where like birth of a nation lacks right and that's why we're so easy to dismiss uh birth of a nation but like gone with the wind we're just like but it's it's gone with the wind well you know it's it's just funny because selznick didn't want this to become another Birth of a Nation. A lot of the decisions that were made on this movie to try to not be Birth of a Nation were, you know, smart. You know, you don't want to be a movie that helps bring back the KKK and lead to a a history of hatred we're still dealing with today. Oops. But, <laughs> yeah, whoops, whoopsie, DW. You... Slap on the wrist for you. Drop the ball on that one. Yeah, bite my thumb at you. Um... <laughs> I think some of the decisions they made trying not to be Birth of a Nation actually ended up hurting it because it leads to a lack of clarity in what it's trying to say that could lead people to have bad faith arguments about this movie. For example, he didn't want the KKK to be an element in the movie at all, which it is in the book, and which is kind of hinted at in the movie after Scarlet gets attacked and Ashley and Frank go and attack those damn fucking hillbillies in the woods subtly hinting at they're kind of starting some kkk shit but not really getting to it so maybe a little more clarity about what you don't want this to be or like maybe deal 
actually deeper into the darkness inherent in the story and location you're you're telling. So yeah, I think uh, that's one of the many reasons why there's some hinky stuff in this movie. I think it's interesting to actually compare this to Birth of a Nation, especially with regard to the way Birth of a Nation sort of repopularized the KKK in, in that a lot has been written in how Gone with the Wind repopularized like plantation culture and especially architecture in the South at fancy institutions at universities is very, very designed to evoke the fanciness that Gone with the Wind embodies throughout these all day barbecues and, and pillars and Greek ish, but also very Southern buildings Mm -hmm. and how Gone with the Wind sort of inadvertently led to that. But I also think it's it's a weird thing with this movie sometimes where to me some of the things and I and that's of course my vantage point as a as a lifelong uh metropolitan northerner, I'm sure, but there are things in this movie that I feel are are fairly explicit in their criticisms of that southern culture that I feel like people kind of miss you know when you show what some people talk about is this idyllic shot of all the women napping you cut from a and let me see i have the quote here but you cut from a plaque at tara you have a plaque that says oh do not waste time it is the stuff life is made of and then immediately cut to all of these debutantes napping just (laughs) literally wasting time while enslaved children fan them And, like, I don't understand, to me, how you can go from one image to the other, unless you're willfully trying to ignore it, go from one image to another and not see that as critical of the very thing it's depicting. It it is hard, because, like, it's hard seeing it in the context of 2020 and being like, oh, this movie's really good, because it knows, it's like, it's, it's, uh, because you kind of view it as like ironic, right? And you're like, oh, this movie's great. This movie's great. And then you get to the point where you're like, no, they really mean what they're trying to say. And that's not okay. I wonder if it does. Cause here's, here's my thing is that I feel like in the first half of the film, I feel like Rhett Butler exists. And this is the one thing I struggled with a bit. Rhett Butler exists very clearly to criticize these people. And, and to criticize the entire plantation culture. He shows up and when all of these, uh, in my notes, I believe brandy drunk dipshits is the, the term I chose, are all talking about how easily how easily they're going to win. And they're going to win because it doesn't matter what the North does. They have Southern values. And he says, all you've got is cotton, slaves, and arrogance. And then later, you know, that famous shot of all the wounded on the battlefield, or, in, you know, in the, in the streets, I should say, all the wounded there, and then it pans from the wounded up to the tattered Confederate flag. Um, if you just isolate that scene, then it, it is a, a moment that is very open to interpretation, whether you want to read it the way that many people do, which is, oh, you know, the, the tragedy of the loss of the Old South, or the way that I always read it, which is, look at how many people died for this stupid flag. And that's always how I read it. Mm. But then if you watch the next scene, when they're looking at the list of the dead, Rhett rides up on his horse and goes, you know, dying, you know, the cause, the cause of what? Staying stuck in the past, refusing to move forward, you know, clinging to stupid. And he, he rips this idea apart. So I think that once you have that follow up scene, I think it, it can't help but give you a sense of why that shot goes to that flag. Where I get thrown, however, is at the end of act one, where yes. after spending yes. the whole 
<laughs> no, I, I, and so that's the thing. I, I wrestled with that. I watched it with my, my significant other and I said, like, this is the one thing that troubles my interpretation. And I understand that part of the problem is, of course, you have to follow the beats of the book and you eventually have to get Red Butler in jail. Um, and I wonder if that was something that Fleming influenced the, the heroism of that speech. And I struggled with why this character who up until now has represented a criticism of Southern values would, would enlist. And the only interpretation I could find was that I think what the burning of Atlanta scene asks us to do, given that the film otherwise has been so critical of the hypocritical South. And I think inarguably, I mean, there are so many points where you would, you would have to believe that the people making this movie were absolutely brain dead to not <laughs> recognize the irony of having a woman at this big gala describe women auctioning off dances as a slave auction and objecting to it when she owns literal slaves. Like, you would have to assume these people were, that hundreds of people were bereft of any sense of irony to not think that intentional. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to Rhett joining the cause, I be- the only thing that I could take from that that still fits what I feel the rest of the film was saying was that the movie is essentially asking us to simultaneously reckon with the fact that the South was backwards and evil, you know, in, 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 its, in its perpetuation of America's original sin and, you know, deserved to be defeated in the war and also acknowledge that Sherman's tactics of burning down essentially whole cities and, and full economic and cultural ruin was also uh, extreme it asks you i think in that moment to have to kind of reconcile with both those things that that red is basically looking at the burning of atlanta and seeing an entire city torched to the ground and people just being what will eventually be starved and, and 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 run out and looking at that and saying i don't agree with this but this is a bridge too far and i think that that is a if if that's what the film is trying to do and it's certainly not the first that's a difficult thing to ask of audiences i i mean i you saw the same thing you know i think about clint eastwood's double feature of flags of our fathers and letters from iwo jima and how even when those came out iwo jima got the best picture but i remember people being kind of conflicted about that because Clint Eastwood was the kind of director, despite his his personal politics aside, he was asking you to simultaneously accept that the Japanese were on the wrong side of World War II. They were part of the Axis powers. They're committing atrocities. And also, we probably shouldn't have dropped those bombs on them because that was a crime. And I think that that's a difficult needle to thread. Well, that was, that's, again, one another one of those things where the movie undercuts itself that I really, that I, I was thrown by. And I understand, like, I, I I I understand why they were doing it, which is because Scarlet is supposed to be the personification of the South. They're like doing this thing where he says earlier, "Well, I guess I'm just a big lover of lost causes." Sort of like he's he's gonna keep fighting for Scarlet, even though she doesn't want him, and he's gonna, you know, he's gonna go back and try to fight and help this lost cause that he loves so much, even though he knows it's fucked up. Kind of hinting at what. His life is going to be like for twelve years dealing with this absolute asshole. I don't think it's 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 a good idea because I think you know it's not the exact one to one comparison that it needs to be for it to work symbolically. 
it does kind of make Rhett a little more um less likable. He's more um cognizant of what the South is doing and he still fights for it. And it it's just a, one of those things that I don't I don't think really worked. Maybe there was a better way to get him away from her without him, you know, fighting a a, a lost cause for slavery and, you know, which uh, which also was kind of funny too having never seen it and hearing people speak so clearly and so definitively that this movie is like pro confederacy and pro slavery i was really kind of surprised that in the scene where they're in at the party and all the men are talking oh we're gonna go to war because we have southern values that they just straight up say we're doing it because they don't want us to have slaver slaves anymore there's no there's none of this like modern day shit we deal with oh it's about states rights they were just straight <laughs> up like, well, they, they even even not even right, just them. Oh, they're trying to take our slaves. This is unconscionable. And I, oh shit, even Gone with the Wind was saying, no, they they were fighting for slavery. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing about this movie, and it makes me think about another 1939 film, which is um, Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game. The Rules of the Game was a movie that I remember watching for the first time uh, when I was in early high school, just because my library had it, and I was like. This sucks. It's just a bunch of rich people being then, being assholes. What's the point? And then, and then, yeah. And then, of course, you get older and you you come to recognize that this is essentially. And I've invoked rules of the game before. I think I'm singing in the rain too, but because it's just this perfect encapsulation of how frivolous and and ignorant these people are right before it all falls apart, and the the arrogance and smugness before it all comes crumbling down. And I, to me, what I think is frustrating about Gone with the Wind is how lost that element has become over time. People read this film as just a a eulogy for the Old South, um, and it's certainly taken on that flavor over the years. And I'm sure that part of that depends on um, one's geographic place uh, of origin when they watch it. But to me, it like Tom mentions that scene of them all sitting around with the brandy. And there's so many moments. You look at the fact that the, the women who are the focus of this film, all they do is nap and wear dresses. And, and that's it. And it's such a, a frozen in time, miserably austere existence. Well, nobody and, works in the first half of them until the war starts. You don't yeah. see all the men. All the men just talk and talk about how great they are. And how great their lives are, and how great the South is. You don't see them do shit. They do, you know, compare and contrast, and do with like, oh, look at all these white guys talking. And then he has a shot of of a, of a black person doing actually doing the work. And uh, then you st- then the war happens, and you see how completely unprepared these people, these lily white spoiled dipshits, are to do anything other than talk. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, the film, the film to me, I, I'm always confused. And, and Justin Lupita, I hope you can speak to this being from the South and having that vantage point. It's always confused me that the film has been taken as a, a sincere eulogy for the Old South when, to me, the representation of the Old South and Southern values is Ashley Wilkes, the Leslie Howard character, who, from the minute you see him, I remember that uh, when my partner and I were watching it, and you hear at the in the opening scene all this hype about Ashley, 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 and then you finally meet him, and she just goes, "Him? Like why? You know, very <laughs> arrested development, you know him." And then what's interesting is 
all of the Southern guys in the film, and I, I this cannot, I, Cooper, Cooper had to intend this, which is that all of the Southern gentlemen are all very washed out. It's not just that they're polished, but they, I mean, makeup wise, you know, complexion was very washed out and very drab. And the minute Clark Gable shows up on screen, he pops, you know, he, every other gentleman you see in the film is, is typically like when you watch a lot of older movies, especially from like the twenties and you know, the tens where it's like, oh, he's the most handsome gentleman and they're the blandest looking sons of bitches. But then you bring in Clark Gable and he is undeniably sexy and not just by 1939 standards like even now you look at him and yeah he's got large ears but beyond that you're like okay i get it i get you know and that contrast has to be intentional and i think the fact that ashley is so useless in the film he's a beta he's so yeah and like you know i mean i I guess you know to tom's point like i think that's i think that's intentional that he is so wishy-washy i mean look at the husband she runs through before she gets finally gets to ret they're all just these lily white just nothing men who get cut down in the most ridiculous ways possible even a father even a father like i laughed at this scene i i guess because i'm just an asshole but like when her father chases the the guys away from the house and he gets thrown through a fence that's just like yeah that's what these southern idiots this is how they would die. These dandy idiots. They they can they can't even fall off a horse without just leaving this mortal coil. They're all kind of useless. And 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 I'll make this quick point, and then Justin, Peter, I want you to touch on that, you know, interpretation. But oh, that's right, um, we have guests. We do. <laughs> but I, I, one of the things I actually really love about Scarlet's character, or or the makeup of Scarlet's character, is the fact that this movie th- there's this weird read, and I guess if you're only like if you're half paying attention, like you could read it as Scarlet is from this old Southern family, you know, like this, this rich history. And she's like, Oh, we can't abandon Tara as though Tara had been in their family for generations. And if you haven't watched the movie in a while, I think you remember it that way, that it's this old family home, that it's, it's like the, like the, the ranch in uh streetcar named desire, another Vivian Lee film. But no, her father is Irish. He won a lot of, he, he won the land in a poker game. This is not some rich familial estate. They're Irish. And he is blatantly Irish. And even the name Tara is just named after the hills of Tara in Ireland. There's nothing, I, I guess, there's, there's nothing even, quote, authentically Southern about Tara. It is not an organically Southern idea. And yet they're responding to it as though it was something that had been there since the dawn of America, you know, and I think that that's such an important element of of that character and how kind of fake the the clinging to the old ways feels. But again, that's that's coming from our vantage point as as uh, lifelong northerners uh, looking at this and, <laughs> and seeing seeing it as critical. And I, I'm wondering, you know, where where you think that that other read comes from of the more sincere you know, glory of the old South kind of vibe that this film takes on for people. One of the things I quickly uh, thought about is whenever you're talking about like how quick they are to call Tara home and they're quick to make it like this big grand thing that they need to save. That's very much like Southern culture. That is the South. <laughs> like We love just making just this like just insignificant things part of like tradition and like making it like just just like just like um 
was going to say? Just like um, increase their value, basically. Once you call something a tradition, it's like it's been there forever. Yeah, and like there's a joke at one of the colleges in Texas. It's like, oh, if an Aggie does something, then it's going to be a tradition. They're going to do it every year and make a T-shirt out of it. Yeah, and it's just like that's just how it is. Like the it's Texas A and M, and so the joke is, how many Aggies does it take to screw in a light bulb? And it's it's three: one to screw it in, one to make it a yearly tradition, and one to make a T-shirt. That's just that is like the thing. You once it's it's yours, it is proudly Southern. One thing that this movie actually reminded me of is: Have y'all seen Michael Bay's Six Underground on Netflix? <laughs> oh. Have I seen Michael Bay's Six Underground? Yes, I have seen. Of course I have seen. <laughs> so, I have not. But, yeah. The Ryan masterpiece Re- of Bayhem. <laughs> so Ryan Reynolds is this main character. He's this very Tony Stark, Bruce Wayne uh, type. He's a billionaire who sees injustice and decides to take the law into his own hands. And to me, the whole time it read as this very tongue-in-cheek criticism of superhero movies and of... Uh, like how fascist they can be. And throughout it, I was like, okay, Michael Bay, he's back on his pain and gain horse. (laughs) And then in the third act, Ryan Reynolds billionaire character learns his lesson. And it's that he doesn't care about his team enough. And his, the big heroic climax is he goes back for one of his teammates. I was completely wrong. (laughs) I was reading way more into it than I actually think Michael Bay intended. Don't get me wrong, that movie slaps and it has some of the best action set pieces I've seen in a very long time. (laughs) But I just, I felt blindsided by this third act climax that, that didn't live up to the movie I was expecting. And when Rhett is like, I feel bad for having not been there to, to stand with my brothers or whatever he does at the end of that first act and he finally enlists it i almost felt betrayed (laughs) yeah because like throughout the first act he was saying all these things that we've been saying about texas and the south and we were like yes brett is he gonna be my new favorite character this is great who is this han solo motherfucker just slipping in shitting on the confederacy and then he just broke our hearts (laughs) and i think like whenever he does that my interpretation of it you can let go of the South, but the South isn't going to let go of you, you know? Like, people who are from the South will gladly tell you they're from the South. And they'll, it's like it's like a badge they wear with pride, which, like, we kind of also do it in our own, like, in, in our own way, you know? Like, it's always going to be home. And, and like, I, like, I think that's just so apparent in people. I, I think a tough thing to do with this movie, and I, I want to bring up one particular thing that bothered me, and we can get into it more later, but, you know, a lot of things that I read when looking this film up were interpretations based on taking a scene in a vacuum. Speaking about a particular image or a particular moment, abstract of context, and in fact, there was one article I read that really irked me, not because of their interpretation, but because of the way they phrased it, which is, and we'll touch on this more later, but they were discussing the somewhat infamous staircase scene, which has a lot of baggage to it and a lot of baggage that's been brought to it over time and it you know various vantage points to that but what they were talking about was they said you know and and Rhett picks her up drunk and brings her up the stairs as she tries to fight him off and then they said and then the next scene shows her in bed smiling to suggest that it was all consensual but if you take away that scene the staircase scene is open to interpretation and i looked at that and went okay but you just essentially said, sure, the next scene gives an answer, but what if we ignore that? What could this mean? Which is like, 
I have absolutely no problem with multiple interpretations of art. Art is is open to many interpretations, but movies give you information in different sequences. They they depict things in a certain order to try and convey something. And I think that to look at and this is a movie that that happens to a lot, which is to pull one scene out of context and look at it and say, ah, look at this though. What do you think this means? Without looking at the rest of what's going on, leaves it open to a lot more sort of bad faith reads or being employed in a way to convey a particular point of view. I think about when we talk about Rhett's shift and his decision to go fight for the South, uh, while that's troubling and we all, I think, stumble over that, uh, Lupita, you said something I thought was interesting um, about you can't let the South go. And I think that the struggle that Rhett has in this movie is not even about letting the South go. It's about letting Scarlet go. And in that moment when he's driving her away in the carriage, he has the opportunity to cut her out of his life completely but he can't move on from her and because he goes back to her even though he shouldn't the story punishes him for it quite clearly you know it's it is not a story that ends happily by any means he marries scarlet eventually gets her to marry him tries to have a happy life and she has no interest in him she's pining fragile they have a child and the child dies. She gets pregnant and loses the baby. Like it's, he is very much in a, in a Greek tragedy way punished for his decisions. And I think that there is certainly a parallel too of the idea of that his decision to go back, whether to the war or to her is kind of karmically, uh, returned to him in tragedy that you cannot, you, you cannot go back home. You cannot restore this, that, the passage of time is going to win that all of this will be titularly gone with the wind that it that there's no way to fight this that's why i said you know it makes a thematic sense um i just you know it just feels like character wise it's kind of not working the way it needs to it's just it's more it's working more on the metaphorical than on the character level and you know i get it i and like you know a good ending can help recontextualize a lot of stuff, which I do think this movie does. I think it's very much clear that Scarlet's, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to get Rhett back. I'm going to rebuild Tara and I'm going to get Rhett back. And it's just her alone in the silhouette up against behind, uh, in front of Tara, Tara's behind her. You know, if she's supposed to represent the South, we know she's not going to get Rhett back. This is just a delusion. She's sticking to an old Southway, and she's going to be alone in her old, hateful, selfish, myopic life. And, you know, you see that, and it kind of, re- for me, it recontextualizes everything. But there's some stuff that works more metaphorically than it does character-wise, and it's uh, similar to the marital rape scene. I get it, even, you know, more so than the wreck going back thing. But, again, metaphorically, oh, the South really just needs to let, you know, needs to be progressive and it'll actually be happy, but it just can't do it. But it's kind of odd when I... you look at the whole characters, arcs of everything. All right. Well, with Tom bringing with me bringing up Tom bringing up, are we, uh, I've, I've got some thoughts there. Are we, are we all ready to dive into the staircase scene? Are we ready to, to take that detour? Because uh, I'll take that detour if we want to take that detour. Can I throw my hat into the ring on, uh, on on Rhett's sort of on please do. Mike's oh, interpretation please, yes. of the of the Greek tragedy. I to me the cause and effect of of sort of the fallout 
came from the way they treated each other. And mm-hmm. also, I totally hear y'all in how that first act depicts the, uh, the Southerners as, as inbred fancy assholes. But to, <laughs> to me, watching that, I actually did not pick up a whole lot of irony. To me, it felt like, can you believe this asshole Rhett? He doesn't believe in the cause. He's not on our side. We gotta get him on our side. And, and he is heroic unabashedly. To me, that was my reading. My interpretation on it, on that was, was, this is what life used to be. It was destroyed and our, our favorite rogue finally gave in to, and saw the cause. I, I think the, the thing that makes the greatest argument for what you're suggesting is, is not the movie itself, but the fact that now in our modern day, I feel like you can't help but watch Rhett Butler and recognize that he is the, uh, the bulk of the DNA of Han Solo. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is the film we just talked about. Um, and also to a degree Lando, because the first time you see him in the, in act two, when he's sitting there playing cards with that jacket draped around him, it's a hundred percent. Um, and, and, and of course with Han Solo, it's the idea that he's dismissive of the cause and dismissive of the force, but then he swings back around with his Millennium Falcon anyway. Right. But that said, I do, I do think there's something so fascinating about Rhett insofar as the, the movie never, to me, feels like it's saying he deserves scorn or deserves it against him. He's, he's, he's an effective character. Um, but let's, let's touch on, you know, the, let, we'll touch on the staircase scene. I was also thinking about when you said that, Justin, about, you know, that you didn't sense irony there. You know, it, it's always a matter of what we bring to it and, of course, what we know, what we come with. What I find so interesting is I watched on the DVD, they had this uh, footage of the opening of the film in Atlanta. And what is so interesting to me, in a way, is that almost no one who worked on this film in a prominent role was from the South. <laughs> and you feel that when they're like, we're opening the film in Atlanta and here to give a speech is Vivian Lee. And you kind of feel, I mean, she was aloof anyway, but you feel in her vibe just, oh, I'm so glad to be here in this lovely place. And even, <laughs> you know, even Gable wanted that role or took that role because it was a cool guy, action hero, swashbucklingy role. Like, I don't think truly to me, I do not think anybody... <laughs> This is me um, going more subjective, of course, and putting my own interpretation on it. But just from what I've read, I don't think anybody gave a shit about the old glory of the South, at least in the initial crew of Selznick and Cooker and and Lee and Gable and de Havilland. I think that Selznick clearly just saw that the book was a massive, undeniable hit and and wanted it. And like we touched on at the beginning, he was he was conscious of the fact that he stated that he did not want the film to do to people of color what or you know and to to african americans what hitler's films were doing to jews in germany at the time being jewish and of course that's that's complicated uh by the fact that like i said he was in touch with the naacp he was in touch with with walter white on that and walter white suggested we can send you a representative on set a, a black representative who can talk about the sensitivity issues in this film and selznick was like we we got somebody he'll do it and walter white objected to that because he felt like a a an African-American who worked in the studio system would just be saying what they wanted to hear. And I think that it becomes complicated. And I, and I think that the other issue that we have with this film is trying to interpret. We, 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 we are forced to interpret it through a modern lens. And I think that obscures some things. I think that we're missing some pieces of the, the decoder ring. 
I know that when I watched it with with my partner and we were discussing the the staircase scene, which I had, she had overheard me talking about with a, a friend of ours uh, who will be on for a future episode uh, about the staircase scene and this article that bothered me about the staircase scene. And then we watched it and she turned around and said, this was not at all what I was picturing. Like she was picturing something that was just so brutal and, and Scarlet was flailing and screaming. And she went, this is you know good or not like this is this is in so many romance novels like this is a staple that scene is a staple of that bodice ripper romance novel and even more so in the 30s and i was thinking about the fact that and this is not to justify anything one way or the other but i was thinking about the fact that this scene also feels a lot different if you think about it as a scene being directed by a man or a scene that was written in a novel by a female author mm. and how I think about the fact that there is a there's a very similar scene in of all things Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and it's a power dynamic and it's a you know it's a it, it is set up as this scene where she she and the book is more explicit about the fact that Scarlet demands attention and she wants men to literally be tearing down the door just to get her to look at them and it makes this out to be a bit more of a game and a bit more of a romantic thing and i think that part of the issue is of course trying to interpret the film through a modern lens and i also think that there's an element of that quite frankly discussions of consent is is very prominent in the media now and something that we need to be having that conversation and having a piece of media that might require more nuance to its interpretation you you got to kind of do the the cost analysis of is it worth getting into the gray area on this or should we just get into the fact that like no no one should do this you know it's like i was saying before like metaphorically it works and even for me you know i'm thinking okay this is made in 1939 it's set in eight in the 1860s for the most part 1870s towards the end and oh by the way we're further away from gone with the wind than gone with the wind was to the civil war How's that? Oh, God. Um, so, like, I'm thinking, okay, this ro- sexual relationship, this sexual dynamic wouldn't be out of place in this time, in this story. Yeah, if you're making this thing now, you change it, or you don't even attempt to do it, because now we just don't even want to have the, the, the conversation that uh, maybe relationships have fucked up moments, or things aren't always good or bad, or right or wrong you understand where they're going metaphorically i get it the theme i get it like a lot with this movie it's really complicating things in a way that it's not doing itself any favors uh 80 years later i'd actually push back on on media today not wanting to have that conversation i mean game of thrones did it a lot right yeah. With- well, they also weren't willing to actually have the conversation. They just do it and say, "Oh, but it's okay. medieval times." <laughs> Never mind. I shouldn't have brought up Game of Thrones. I don't want to get into it. No, I take it back. but it's, I it's interesting. No, but can I can I leap on that for a second? Because you know what the thing is, I did think of when we were when when my partner and I were discussing this scene uh, in this film, and and she was talking about romance novels, and it made me think of uh, obviously this this weird thing that we had that at the same time that we were starting to have a a really very important conversation on consent in this country, 50 shades of gray was a huge hit and they made the movies and Mm. you had a lot of conversation from people in the BDSM community saying this doesn't represent it properly. Basically saying we don't want people to see this film and get the wrong idea. And I think that the one thing when we talk about media today is I, I can't help but feel, and we've been watching a lot of older films for this and I've been watching a bunch in addition to that as kind of, extracurricular uh, reading for this 
And the one thing you kind of discover is that it feels like older films seem to have more faith in their audience to draw a conclusion to interpret things. And I feel like now with film, you know, we we have if a movie does not directly, directly say what its issues are and where it stands on something, people will assume the worst if they want to. And we'll very often look for the worst and look for something. I think about the fact that I remember having a conversation with someone about, and here's a movie I didn't like, um, but this past year, uh, Jojo Rabbit, and people saying, I just, I'm just worried that people are going to watch this and take like a pro-Nazi Nazi message from it. And I kind of thought, I have a lot of problems with Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> I think you'd be hard-pressed to look at that movie and say, I mean, you could argue that it minimizes the Holocaust. You could argue a, a number of different things about how it handles its subject. But you'd be hard-pressed, unless you're looking for it, to say that movie is pro-Nazi. Like, Tom talks about it not being successful in, in what it does and sometimes being more metaphorical but not working from a character perspective. And I agree with that. I also think that there's an element of... I, I don't want to suggest that we have more or less media literacy now than before, but I think that the prism through which we view cinema has, has certainly changed over the last 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, so I have thoughts on, <laughs> on, on what Mike said, but I think Lupita wanted to share her perspective on that stairway sequence before we slip too far away from that. Yeah. Uh, I think what's so important to see about that, uh, and even just looking at the, like, the movie as a whole, like we have been talking a lot about Rhett and all that, but like it's like Scarlet's story. Like She's like the main character of it. In that stairway scene, like from the get-go, you know her intention. She just wants to take a fucking drink of whiskey. She wants to relax. She's stressed because of all these Yankees. And then, and then Rhett is over here just being like, just, just like being obnoxious and not letting her just enjoy herself. And then, and then like he just takes her and grabs her and like goes up the staircase. And I think what, what to tie it back to like romance novels, it's really in the perspective of women where, where we're reading like this scene. And from the beginning, I was, I knew where, I hadn't heard of this scene that much, so I didn't know where it was going. But from, like, their vibe interacting, I was like, oh, like, I now know what, where it's going. And, and Justin had no idea, even when the scene had ended, like, that she was marital, maritally raped. And I was like, no, it's so clear. It's so clear. He's like, yeah, but, like, that's not what it's like. She gave in. She's smiling. It's like, but it's just, it's just so different. So I'm sure, like, back then, this was kind of like a, ooh, like, steamy scene, and all of those, like, white women got hot and heavy for, for Rhett and, like, take me into your arms. But at the same time, I'm sure there were other women that were like, I don't want my husband to ever really do that to me. And it reminded me, actually, quite a bit of a conversation that Lupita and I have had before about Rocky. And in Rocky, when he first kisses Adrian, she's like, no, no. And he kisses her. And I, I honestly have no idea if that is presented critically in Rocky. I, I, I go back and forth on it. And that's like 40 years after Gone with the Wind. And they're still sort of having these same conversations on, on how that relationship is shown on screen and whether it's, it's sexy for the man to do that or not. 
I mean, we're still dealing with that now. And I think that that's because not to get too much into the weeds with this, but one thing that we're having trouble, I think, today dealing with when we talk about things, particularly things of this kind are is the fact that human sexuality is very complicated. (laughs) No, and and I, I, you know, like I think about it from the angle of there's so many different things to that. But like it is this thing where it's it's very and and the fact that recently I saw a discussion where somebody turned around and and was talking about um the Vladimir Nabokov novel Lolita and you could obviously suggest that there are people who read that and just see it at a surface level and are creeps as a result but there's also an element of that novel is very much going out of its way to say something can be really well made and also toxic that is that is the point of that novel and people are kind of not able to go that far with it because they're looking at it and kind of drawing very definitive lines of what is good and what is bad and it becomes very difficult I think to sort of legislate and 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 draw definitive lines of what is or isn't acceptable when it comes to relationships and human sexuality because we we can't help it we all kind of measure it by what we personally do or don't want and what we personally do or don't like and i can't with any romantic film with any romance in cinema it becomes very hard to not put that on that i i mean there were so many movies like you talked about justin with the you know they them saying no at first and then they kiss it happens constantly in film because it is one of the key elements of you know one of the the key cliches of the romance genre and the weird thing about it is if you're watching a movie and you're actually vibing with the couple and you want to see them get together and you buy their chemistry that scene happens and you let it just run by but if it's a movie where you're not on board for that couple you immediately step back and go oh this is this is messed up this is wrong and i think it's it is a challenging thing for us to kind of watch those moments and this film is riddled with that this film is not just from the the you know the relationship perspective it is a movie that presents us with so many moments and images that we kind of have to not just take in the context of its time i don't want to put it just as that but to accept that there can be different interpretations than just our knee-jerk reaction to things again i you know we talk about the tattered confederate flag and look, my knee-jerk reaction when I see a Confederate flag is just to go, oh, Jesus, <laughs> because of what it, especially because of what it is now, and especially because of what it has come to represent now, which is this real nostalgic sense of things were better in the good old days. You know, especially how it's used in certain films. You know, you look at a lot of films that deal with, the, you know, South and Civil War. A lot of times it is, you, you were supposed to see that flag and go, oh, man, what a fuck up. Or maybe... Or even just look at it and go, God, remember that time when half the country split, the country murdered each other and then just tried to get back together and pretend it didn't happen? <laughs> that was rough. Because that's that's the other element that, that Gone with the, Wind, the entire act two of Gone with the Wind deals with, which is the idea and, of course, the concept of reconstruction and how we view reconstruction as a success or a failure is a can of fucking worms. But at least the movie's vantage point to me does seem to suggest this idea of like, yeah, what do you do after the war? You have obliterated the enemy and now you're like, good, you're part of the country again. Let's see how that goes. It is easy to look at that and perhaps see it as totally critical of the North because the Yankees want more taxes. But I, I think there's more to it than that. I think that with a lot of this, it is, again, it's it's a hard thing to pin down. And I don't think that in a in a particular place that we are as a culture where we are in a a seismic time 
and and rightly so, where we are trying to rewrite the rules of what is or isn't acceptable. You know, the same way that if you look at the 1960s and the conversations about, well, why is it that we do this this way? Why is it that we believe this thing? I, I think that we are in a time now where we're trying to redefine that, but that also makes things that are more ambiguous or more gray areas. This is something that I sort of generally struggle with that Gone with the Wind made me think of, especially with the degree to which it presents itself as critical of, of the Confederacy and its ills. But to what degree is uh, art guilty for the people who misunderstand it? Because when people come out like, like, Fight Club is my shit, bro, I'm going to beat up some assholes because I'm Fight Club, first rule of Fight Club. Or they're like, Jordan Belfort, he's a legend of the game. That's why I got into finance in the first place. That's, people like that are everywhere. They might outnumber the people who actually get Fight Club yep. and the Wolf of Wall Street. And to what degree is, is Fight Club and the Wolf of Wall Street sort of culpable for the, the people that they make? Well, it's it's interesting you say that. When I was writing out how we're going to introduce this episode, which by now people might have heard, I was talking about, I was thinking about that and the fact that that's a hard thing to answer because, you know, of course there's a question of does intent matter when it comes to impact? And the fact that Art, when we talk about it academically, obviously art is open to interpretation and all interpretation is healthy and discussion is healthy. But when a particular interpretation of a particular work of art has real world consequences, those are inarguable. So, for example, you know, if somebody watches a movie that we're discussing and one of us suggests is pro-Confederacy and the other suggests is uh, anti-Confederacy... And if somebody watches that movie and then goes out and, uh, I, I don't know, um, burns down a, you know, uh, somebody's house and plants a Confederate flag on the lawn, well, inarguably, that's an effect of the art. But how much of that do we attach to the artist? I mean, sometimes it's easy. I don't think any of us are going to suggest in all seriousness, I have to specify that because I know Tom, I don't think any of us are going to suggest that J.D. Salinger is responsible for the death of John Lennon just because Mark David Chapman read Catcher in the Rye before he shot him. At the same time, and I, again, I'm, I'm repeating myself a bit, but at the same time, we're gonna hold Lenny Gleefenstahl accountable. Right. <laughs> yeah. In most cases, though, it becomes more difficult, and I struggle with that a lot, because I think that now, as an artist and as a writer, you have an obligation, You ha it's, it's necessary to make sure that your point is clear, to avoid misinterpretation because of the effects it might have, which is something that I struggled with in preparation for this. I mean, you know, we had, uh, I, you guys agreed to do this movie months ago, <laughs> and I moved the recording to now so that I had the time to read up and do things because I'm so afraid of saying something, even now on this podcast with who knows what size audience we have, saying something that could be used, you know, or taken the wrong way and, and used to justify something that I, I don't believe in. At the same time, I think it is a lot more difficult, especially when it comes to older art, for an artist for to to ask an artist to not only create something that conveys a message for their time that people understand in their time, but to somehow anticipate what the future is going to look like and what circumstances will have. I mean, we talk a lot about intention, not to get too political here, but you know, when we talk about something like the Second Amendment. Everybody know, you know, acknowledges that the founding fathers were thinking of muskets and militias and not AR-15s in cities. But 
you know, that that exists now and 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 has been misused and misinterpreted in many ways. So I guess it's it's kind of a question, especially with these older films. Um, even so now to some degree, but especially with these older films, you know, the question of how responsible are they? And I, I also think if I may, and I, I hope I'm not rambling too much, Justin, to your point, but I think it also depends on what we want to think of the movie itself, because I know plenty of people, and I'm not going to call anybody out, I'm not going to name names, but I know plenty of people, I think Tom and I both did, Justin, you knew too, people who are the kind of people where if you walked up to them and said, is a movie responsible for an audience's interpretation or misinterpretation who would go, absolutely not. And if you walked up to them and said, is Christopher Nolan responsible for the Aurora shooting? They would say, absolutely not. And they were the same people that went, I'm pretty sure the Joker is going to cause riots. That movie's irresponsible. And where did that come from? Well, that came from in part, I like this one thing and I have faith in this one thing. And my interpretation is that this is good and doesn't mean that. And this other thing I think is bad and irresponsible. And this is my reading of it. I think it really comes down to what we want to ascribe to something. I think that with this film in particular and what we're talking about, I, my big struggle with it all the time is, and it's not just this film, we've done it before. I'm so tired of having to argue about the pros and cons of a movie with somebody who hasn't seen it. Yeah. You know, right. another film that's similar is, is, um, you know, we, we just, it came back in the news because of the retheming of a ride, but song of the South was back in the news again. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is song of the South is a terrible film. Dog shit. Also, Awful. Yeah. And also, an ignorant film, a very ignorant film. However, I do think it's one of those things where no person who has actually seen it sees a film that is worse than what they were imagining. Mm-hmm. I think all of us had, and I'm, I'm assuming we've all seen it now, right? I know Tom has, and I know you guys are doing a Disney watch. It is a weirdly innocuous film. Not that it's completely inoffensive, but it's, it's, it's kind of like if your uncle had to put on a play <laughs> and you're just like, Ooh, I don't love some of these takes. But it is not the movie that any of us, I think, pictured it to be because it was so inaccessible. And its inaccessibility, I think, makes it worse. And I I think that with this film, it's inarguable that the depictions of people of color are offensive and ill-informed. I think there's different reads on why those characters are played that way. Um, If you guys haven't seen on HBO Max, there's a great panel discussion Tom and I watched that gets into the character of Prissy and why it was played this way. Yeah, well, but 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 that's what's so interesting. I mean, first off, Butterfly McQueen is a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend anybody look her up. She was uh, a scholar and and just an incredible human being and deserves a biopic, you know. And she had problems with the way that some of the scenes were played. But but all the same, to get back to your question, Justin, I guess I guess that's to me. And I hate I'm so sorry to uh, you know uh, Bogart some some microphone there. But that to me is a big thing that weighs on me about interpretation. I'm I'm of the mind that the movie is the thing and. Idiots are going to just twist it to fit their their worldview. I mean, how many of these dipshits in the alt-right and these MAGA trolls would act, are like going to watch Star Wars and be like, yeah, Star Wars is great. We, we're the rebels. And be like, no, assholes, you're the stormtroopers. You're the fascist. <laughs> I, come, I come from, I was born in Brooklyn. I come from a, you know, my, I got cousins. My older brother were all into rap. So I grew up with rap and rap culture. And how many, and even today. How many of these people, these fucking idiots, hold up Scarface's, I want to be like Scarface. Motherfucker, he dies at the end because he becomes too coked out of his mind and, and burns his entire life down. I mean, <laughs> to, to, to do something like, like Wolf of Wall Street, you got good fellas that a lot of idiots, especially Mike can attest to this, 
every idiot we grew up with that then became a cop <laughs> loves Goodfellas. What? It's not wrong. But it, 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 it's a moot, and they're like, oh yeah, I love Goodfellas. My life is just like Goodfellas. My family, oh yeah, we're really good. And you go, okay. But the end of the movie very explicitly has Henry Hill thrown into a fucking hovel in the in the Midwest alone. Everyone he knows either dead or in jail because of him. How do you look up to Henry fucking Hill at the end of this movie? So, I mean, I think there's a, a, a vast difference in some some jerk-off shooting John Lennon because J.D. Salinger wrote a book and what Lenny Riefenstahl did. Lenny Riefenstahl made propaganda movies. That's like straight up, okay, you're just a bad person who made the world explicitly worse. Like... D.W. Griffith with Birth of a Nation. I would put Gone with the Wind more in that almost J.D. Salinger area. Maybe not as far to the end of that scale because there is a lot of bad decisions and ignorance, which I ultimately don't think is actually supposedly mean-spirited or hateful or propagandistic for a Confederate pro-slavery way of life. So... I'm of the opinion that, and people just need to be able to make the movies they want to make, and we judge them, and idiots are just going to, I mean, idiots are just going to take it the way they want to, because if they had any semblance of self-awareness, they would realize 99% of the art they ingest and apparently love is not actually for them. Yeah, I think, like, in in the context of, like, Gone with the Wind, the important thing about it is, like, accessibility, right? Because, like, the only way anyone can watch this movie is on HBO Max. And the only way you can watch it is if you watch that, like, um, like 10 minute clip of someone like contextualizing and like saying this movie you're about to watch. It's a bad movie. It's an important movie in these regards, but it is a very bad movie and you need to understand the history behind it. Or just like bad in terms of its, its context. Yeah. It's like, it's like culturally insensitive um, in that regard. And I think. Like, with comparing it to Song of the South, where you can't watch it anywhere unless you want to watch the, the shitty version on YouTube, like, Disney should just, like, own up to it, but, like, own up to it and be like, yes, we're sorry, this is what happened. Make a documentary about it, you know? Like, just, just like, apologize. But with, but what they're doing with, like, burying it and, like, just, just erasing it from their parks, they're just kind of, like, culpable, right? They're just kind of, like like, trying to erase it from their past without owning up to it. Which is, you know, a more problematic to me than the actual offensive parts of the movie because, you know, I think, you know, movies are made in context. They're made in a, in a specific time, and the, that those times help inform the movie. And yeah. by trying to say that didn't exist is almost like saying, oh, the Civil War wasn't fought about slavery. It was about states' rights. It's It's not helping us see where we were, how far we've come, and how far we still need to go. So I like that they put the context in front of Gone with the Wind. As much as I think it's ridiculous and silly for anybody to watch Blazing Saddles and not get that wh where it's coming from, <laughs> I'm still okay with it. HBO Max putting a, a, a context clip in front of it because I'd rather it be there than somebody bury it. I think it's pretty cowardly. It's pretty offensive in my mind to just say, oh, no, we never made these mistakes. Well, motherfucker, explain Splash Mountain to me. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it's not wrong 
to say, I mean, we're Americans, we're in America. It's not, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the deep flaws that are, make up our country. The flaws we're still dealing with now, the world, the country's on fire, not just because of a pandemic, but because of deep seated fucking racism built into the police of this, of this country. It, America is about the, the, the dream being better than what we were yesterday. So by erasing that, I think that's more fucked up than actually having it and wrangling with the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. To jump on that, if I may, I, may, I was thinking about the fact, and there's a lot of things, you know, we're having discussions now. You feel like a lot, there's pieces of pop culture that somebody, somebody will bring up and say, well, we need to change this because it has racist origins. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm saying this more to the angle of, you know, when you hear that the ice cream truck is changing its song because Turkey in the Straw uh, has minstrel origins. There's so much that us people in, you know, in, in suburbia, us, you know, white privileged kids, we don't, we don't know because we just excised all of that from history. We don't talk about it. We don't approach it. And therefore we don't even know where some of these things come from. And, and I think that it's a, it's a challenge because again, it is about contextualizing. And I also want to say the, the intro they have to HBO max, I think is is great because the, and the, and the woman who does the intro is also on that panel that they added on there, um, which is it's not necessarily just outright going, oh, this movie's bad or you know, this movie's offensive or anything like that. It is simply helping us to reconcile with that it is possible for something to be beautiful and flawed mm-hmm. or beautiful and offensive. And I think that one of the things we struggle with as audiences now is I, there is always this reaction when something bad comes out, when somebody gets canceled. These people who like to go, well, I was never a fan of them. Well, I always thought it sucked. Oh, I right. never liked this. I actually never liked that. And I think that that makes it worse. And I think that that doesn't, that reaction to basically go, if this is offensive or if this is hateful or evil, it cannot also be beautiful, puts us at a disadvantage because it makes us not prepared for essentially the hateful ideology to be smuggled in the form of, you know, the apple on the tree of knowledge, if you will. You know, we we almost have this idea that every insidious thing and every bad person will look like a lumbering villain, you know, drumming their fingers together and going, yeah, you know, right. And, and how many times how many times do we have that discussion about whether it's the current president or so many people where they go, he can't be racist. I saw him smile at a non-white person once, you know, or, right. or, well, if he was racist, he'd be wearing a Klan hood. And it's like, no, man, we have not prepared ourselves. We do not allow ourselves to recognize the fact that there something can be two things, that Gone with the Wind can be beautifully made and seductively charming and technically brilliant, and the story can be compelling. And also, its depictions are undeniably racist, and that some of its stances, and particularly the novel that it's based on stances, are entirely uh, wrong-headed and vile. I mean, I, I mentioned this to you guys off mic, but you know, I tried reading the book. I got about halfway through before I was like, Jesus. Because uh, if you think the movie has maybe some pro-Confederate leanings, it is genuinely like, watching Paul Verhoeven Starship Troopers and then trying to read the book. The <laughs> book is so explicitly, the book explicitly has the clan in it, uh, in a positive light. The book is overtly and terribly racist. 
I think, I mean, you know, the, the, the work they did, admittedly, it's still a stock character, but the work they did from the book version of Mammy to the Oscar winning Hattie McDaniels performance, there's a, there's a chasm there, um, Mm. in terms of how it was written. And I also think that to all of their credit, the people of color in this film are doing their damnedest. Butterfly McQueen, I mentioned before, is amazing uh, as a performer in general. Uh, and she did not want to do a lot of those things. And she talked to Selznick about it. And she talked to him out of some and was stuck doing some others. I know that several people I read suggested that she was playing the character both as a parallel to Scarlett's own selfishness and also playing it in this idea that during times of slavery, slaves, some slaves would pretend to be ignorant as a, as a survival tool. And that that was how McQueen was doing it. But at the same time, I mean, Hattie McDaniels is undeniably bringing so much to that role that is that is um, that is not on the page. Uh, But I I think we need to be able to reconcile those things. And I think that that becomes hard when we have to put everything in a binary. And I think that what that HBO Max intro does so well is make that point that it something can be two things, you know, that, that we can process the negatives and the offensiveness and also recognize other elements of the film for sure i was telling justin whenever we whenever it was really the mammy focus scenes and like uh the butterfly mcqueen scenes i was like you know what this sucks that they had to play these roles and these roles were written this way but like they could have gotten white people and done blackface like they could have went there but the fact that they chose black actors and paid them maybe not enough but paid them and one ended up getting an oscar like that's monumental in itself still bad that they had to play play those roles but that's still like a landmark in history it's again funny that you know context of time and everything it's like yeah it sucks that they had to play roles like that um i mean if you're telling that story those roles are gonna have to be filled by somebody but you know at least it was done in 1939 and not, you know, 2010 with um, Viola Davis. Ugh. Well, yeah, the, the, the health was similar. But can I, can, I, can I make one point, though? It's funny you mentioned specifically blackface, Lapita. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was thinking about, I just watched today another film that came out in 1939 and was nominated for a couple of Oscars. And we'll talk about the Oscars in a second. I have a couple more things I want to touch on real quick. But... One of the other Oscar movies is a movie called Babes in Arms, which is a musical starring Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Uh, and it's just, it seems like it's going to be this innocuous movie about they got to put on a show. It's just the two of them and they got to put on a show to show that the kids can do it just like the grownups. And then in this movie, the, the, the middle of this film is their show. And it starts with Judy Garland singing about how she want how her daddy was a minstrel show uh, performer. And she wants to be one too. And then it launches into a full minstrel performance and when i say that i i mean when we talk about blackface in old films sometimes it's a case of like fred astaire in swing time who does a tribute to his tap teacher in blackface which is hard to watch and you can sit down and you can read things that go well in that time they thought of it as a tribute and in that time it was a different context and he was just doing it to look more like bojangles and and you can read that and go okay this is still tough to watch I mean, I guess that's your excuse. But this was the characters, the voices, the songs. It was one of the most painful things. I, it was it was truly excruciating. It was it was disgusting. And I, I like Judy Garland. I like Mickey. It is truly, I mean, a full minstrel show, uh, you know. And the thing that struck me watching it 
was that I am not going to excuse that with it was the times. We can look at we we don't always have a perspective on uh times. It was 1939. That is two years after Zora Neale Hurston publishes Their Eyes Were Watching God. <laughs> that is no, I mean it like that is three no, you're years. Right, yeah. Three years after Jesse Owens represents America in Berlin at the Olympics to refute Hitler's master race. That same year, Marian Anderson sang on the Lincoln Memorial and Crystal Bird Fawcett sits as the first rep- black representative in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. There was no fucking argument. I mean, there is never an argument. There is no, it is, it is unfathomable to think that anyone in this country was able, able to look another human being in the eyes and see them as less than, but it is unfathomable to deny someone their personhood like that in that year. And what is interesting to me about that is the fact that when we are looking at Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind has some very, very problematic depictions. But it was interesting, Lupita, when you mentioned they could have done blackface. There was a part of me that instinctually wants to go, well, they wouldn't have done it by them, but they fucking did, did. In, in Babes in Arms. And it is so difficult. I think that, you know, and, and the other thing is the struggle with that movie is that it's trying to comment on racism in some points it tries to do a scene that on paper if i said you were watching a scene where the slave had to go outside in the rain and wander through the mud to fetch a chicken so that the white people inside dry in their fancy clothes could have dinner you'd say wow that's an interesting comment on race but the caricature that they make the black actor play mm-hmm. is such a minstrel stock character that it becomes impossible to fully give them credit for that it's it's such a a difficult thing to wrap one's head around but i i I just wanted to comment on that babes in arms thing in particular and how much that really fucking threw me now lupita i i would love to talk to you about this in particular um because i I, you you mentioned your vantage point watching the staircase scene as a woman and i i was thinking about granted I, i you know again i'm not the most alpha male so i have a different you know viewpoint a bit but scarlet i want to talk about scarlet because i think that scarlet is such a fascinating character Mm mm-hmm um hbo max you know like i said had that panel there and all three women on that panel simultaneously acknowledged that scarlet was a compelling character for them and you know feeling some love or some sympathy for scarlet while acknowledging how vilely selfish she is and nasty she is and terrible she is and what struck me watching it and and i, I would love to get your take on that too and how you feel about her what struck me watching it a couple of images came to mind uh, one is of course uh, tracy flick in election Mm-hmm. But another one that came to mind is is Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood. Mm. Uh, and it also made me think about the reaction that we had to deal with in the mid-2000s toward uh, Walter White's wife and Rick's wife on The Walking Dead and this thing that we tend to do in media that if a man, if a male character, a male protagonist is selfish and will do anything to survive and is ruthless and will kill people, they're an anti-hero. And they are to be related to and celebrated and commended. And then the attitude seemed to be, especially, again, in that mid-2000s era, that if a woman does a single thing for herself that steps out of line, she is to be condemned, she is the villain. Mm -hmm. And to look at a movie from 1939 that makes a protagonist that is so on paper unlikable that is a a woman doing whatever she's got to do to survive and throwing everyone she can under the bus and just and just getting by 
to have that kind of and and to have broad appeal with with female viewers i mean i i look at scarlet as what we would you know what we now call an anti-hero and i i connect to that and i do find myself very compelled by her behavior and i was wondering if what what was your response again from that vantage point um of being a you know a modern day female viewer of this film and and that character and maybe in light of how we respond to female characters today yeah i like i really admired how uh vivian lee like really portrayed scarlett scarlett o'hara because like she is she plays like 16 and then like 29 at the end so she has like a lot of ages to portray with scarlett and like she can get whiny she can get kind of like impatient but like whenever you look at her she's very determined she kind of fumbles and like loses her footing whenever like she constantly constantly gets uh, rebuffed by Ashley and so she doesn't know quite what to do and then the war happens and she figures out oh no this is what I need to do I need to save Tara I I need to um I need to do what I can to keep this history alive. And it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's admirable what she's trying to do, right? Cause she has this passion for it and she has this determination. What's so frustrating about her is that like her discompassion for everyone else. And I think it's just, it's just so frustrating. Um, so that's what I was feeling every time I was watching her on screen is just like this back and forth with like, I admire what you're doing, but I don't admire what you stand for. Um, and just the eyebrows on Vivian Lee, like really, like sh- like the stares she gives people. I'm just like, you are frightening. Um, and I think like I really saw a lot of, particularly like the white women in Texas in her, because she is very much like becomes the matriarch of her quote unquote family or her society, right? And that's what I see a lot of white women in like Dallas socialite culture and like a lot of women who become like that alpha woman um, in in their circle. Right. So it's just it was just such an interesting character to watch. Does she remind you of my grandmother? She does remind me of Justin's grandmother a whole lot. Like she's very subdued at some points, but then she just like goes for it. I want to pivot from there into into something closer toward the end to to, to round us out, which is. We always try and talk about the the Oscars when it comes to these films. And of course, this was uh, massive at the Oscars. Something I find so interesting to touch on that when you're talking about Vivian Lee is that the search for Scarlett O'Hara and who would play Scarlett O'Hara was massive. We cannot comprehend what that was like in a way, you know, insofar as, of course, now Justin and I have both written for comic book news sites. So we've all had to do those blips of so-and-so might play this superhero, right? (laughs) We do those. But what is crazy is that more people were talking about the search for Scarlett O'Hara when there was far fewer media outlets. Uh, Everyone was up for this role. Catherine Hepburn was up for this role. One of my favorites, Lucille Ball, was up for this role. Oh, thank God, Lucille. Fucking passed. think of that. Thank God she passed. I'd watch it. <laughs> what if? What if at the end of her taking chocolates off the conveyor belt, she said, "I'll never go hungry again." Um, <laughs> That's the crossover we need. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the DVD, they act, uh, the DVD I have has a number of the screen tests they did, and the one that oh. I found so interesting is we had just finished doing Modern Times, uh, and I started watching this and. Charlie Chaplin's uh, lover, Paulette Goddard, 
was very close to getting Scarlett O'Hara. Okay. The reason she didn't get it was in part because David O. Selznick worried that if word got out about her non-marital living situation with Charlie Chaplin, it would cause a scandal and ruin the film. Jesus. Interestingly, he then cast Vivian Lee, who was living with Laurence Olivier. <laughs> but to me, Vivian Lee seems like such an obvious casting choice because, and I, I'm going to say this with absolute respect. I mean this with absolute respect because I do love this character. Vivian Lee had the finest resting bitch face of any performer in the history of cinema. <laughs> and you need that for Scarlett O'Hara. Yes. The other person who seemed close to the role was Betty Davis. Mm. And in a weird thing, and I recommend you guys look it up if you're ever curious because I find it fascinating. Betty Davis did not get Scarlett O'Hara and her studio to appease her threw her in this movie called Jezebel with Henry Fonda, which is another Southern set drama. Except this one takes place in the middle of a plague of yellow fever and everyone gets quarantined. So it's really fun to watch now. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, and that movie ended up coming out before Gone with the Wind. Betty Davis won Best Actress for Jezebel the year before Gone with the Wind. Uh, so Jezebel is kind of, think of it as Jezebel is the ants to Gone with the Wind's A Bug's Life. Um, now, how much do you guys know... Offhand, because I'm fascinated by this, about the year 1939 for the Oscars. Ooh, what that was the well, I don't know about the Oscars because I always forget about like the year movies come out and then whenever they're honored. Was Wizard of Oz nominated at that time? Yes, yes. it is a fucking murderer's row. I watch them all now and it's fascinating. It is it is the best year the Oscars ever had. So Gone with the Wind is nominated alongside Dark Victory, which is a Betty Davis drama with Ronald Reagan uh, and Humphrey Bogart. Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is a quintessential uh, teacher drama. Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and The Lawrence Olivier Wuthering Heights. Jesus Christ. couple interesting things about that. Because that is such a good year, 1939 is also the most represented year in the National Film Registry. Mm. There are 19 films from 1939 in the National Film Registry, most of which were just mentioned, but also Only Angels Have Wings, Young Mr. Lincoln, Tevye, Cologne from the Diary of Rain Astrid, a lot of stuff. So what's fascinating about that, you know, again, it's a murderer's row, and Gone with the Wind almost entirely dominates. It won Best Picture, won Best Director. Uh, it was nominated for Best Actor for Clark Gable. He lost to Robert Donat from Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is one of the only losses this thing racks up. Vivian Lee wins Best Actress. Hattie McDaniel wins Best Supporting Actress. Olivia de Havilland's also nominated for Best Supporting Actress that year. It wins Best Screenplay. Interestingly, it loses Best Original Score to The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it loses Best Sound Recording to a movie called When Tomorrow Comes. Wins Best Art Direction, wins Best Cinematography Color, wins Best Editing, and loses Best Special Effects to a movie called The Rains Came, which is about a town that gets flooded. Now, for my money, The Burning of Atlanta should have gotten that award, especially because, I don't know if you guys know, Selznick literally set fire to a lot. That's what I thought when I, when, when yeah. I saw that. I was like, that looks real. That, that looks real. In order for them to build Tara and the sets for Gone with the Wind, they had all these sets in the back lot they needed to get rid of. And so David O. Selznick decided, let's just set them all on fire, burn them down, film stunt doubles in the Rhett and Scarlet parts in the carriage because we haven't cast them yet. And then we'll just use that for the movie. And if you watch the one scene where, if you remember, the big structure is collapsing as the cart runs by in front of it, that is the gate that King Kong walks out of in King Kong. <laughs> oh, wow. They just torched it to the fucking ground. 
now I bring up the Oscars for, for two reasons. Um, well, we always wrap up the Oscars, but I, I bring up for two reasons that I want to address. One that I think is really interesting, just a little fun fact, and Tom and I were talking about this. Thomas Mitchell uh, won Best Supporting Actor for John Ford's Stagecoach. Thomas Mitchell also played Scarlett O'Hara's father in Gone with the Wind and was also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, wow. So he had a banner year. The other thing I want to touch on, uh, besides, I mean, look, there's a lot of great performances. I mean, the amazing thing about Best Actor is the fact that Jimmy Stewart is in for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mickey Rooney is in for Babes in Arms. Clark Gable's in for Gone with the Wind. It's like every big name you could think of. But the one I want to touch on, if I may, is Best Director. Because here's the thing that kind of sticks in my craw here. Do you give Victor Fleming Best Director for a movie that he only directed half of, if even? No. Can you just say Best Direction, just sort of generally? But I guess maybe the Oscars won't even allow that. But I I hear that as a question, though. Especially, I I think, when you look at that year and you're like, you could have given it to Frank Capra or John Ford. They made the whole movies. Or fuck it, if you want to give it to Victor Fleming so bad, he made another whole movie that you nominated. Yeah, I hear it's a pretty good one. May have aged pretty well. I think we may talk about it at some point. Who knows? But yeah, I I just find that so interesting. And yeah, it did it did dominate the Oscars. I know that it's it's also Gable not winning Best Actor may seem like a surprise. He did win Best Actor a couple years earlier for It Happened One Night, which might be the only reason that movie did not get all five major awards. But gotta love who those knows? Oscars politics. <laughs> I will say Robert Donat is very good in Goodbye Mr. Chips. It is a you know it's. But, like, all of those movies have had some influence. You know, obviously, Stagecoach and Wizard of Oz and Wuthering Heights and Ninochka and Mr. We all know those. Even Love Affair, a movie that you would think no one's heard of and doesn't really have any consequence, gets remade about 20 years later as An Affair to Remember. Oh, my God. So this is a, you know, a wild, fascinating year, 1939. I would just like to say, I think Olivia de Havilland gives the heads and shoulders best performance in the movie. That's just me. <laughs> Can I? Okay, with that, one trivia fact that I kind of love. So the secondary couple in this film is Olivia de Havilland and Leslie Howard, mm-hmm. right? Right. Leslie Howard would die maybe three years after this film's release, two years, I think, fighting in the war as a spy for the British government. So he does not live five years after this film's release. Yeah. Wild. Meanwhile, Olivia de Havilland died as of this recording, I think, three weeks ago. Yeah insane that's buck wild we, we stand a queen oh I, I i just want to quickly uh because i we mentioned pov before and i wanted to just kind of touch on that i think the biggest flaw with this movie at, at like as a movie but also as its reputation as time goes on is it's so focused on scarlet that there is no broader sense of like we jump to this character, we jump to this character. If Scarlet's not in the room, we kind of aren't there. And it, I mean, it, it, I, I suppose I, I guess that's. I mean, I don't have a problem with that perspective. No, no, but, no that's um, not. But that's not what mm-hmm. I mean. That's. Mm-hmm. It's that by doing that, it has to limit the amount we get with the black characters. And because it's 1939, they can't actually be accurate with how bad slavery was in a movie. They have to, like, whitewash it and make it not as bad and just kind of hope you know slavery's bad. And I don't know. I think by doing that, I think that's sort of the biggest kind of the biggest 
thing that well, kind of holds this movie I, back with, for people. I, I think that that's, uh, but that also raises a question of, is that, and I, I don't mean to answer one way or the other. I mean, that, that brings us to a question of, is that art's fault? Or is that any works of art's fault? So I think it's something that sticks in my crawl a little bit that we have to reconcile with everything. Um, and this may seem like a weird pull. But when they did that anniversary special for Saturday Night Live, and uh, they were doing a portion that was a Q&A with Jerry Seinfeld. Does anyone remember what I'm talking about? Or am I pulling yeah. completely out of nowhere? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they had Ellen Cleghorn, um, one, of, one of the most underrated Saturday Night Live performers, and who never really got a career after Saturday Night Live, gets up and delivers a very over-the-top delivery of a question, which is, well, how come... There were no black people on the Seinfeld show. And Jerry goes, yes, I'm sorry we didn't solve all of society's ills and and brushes it aside. And I think about that moment a lot because it is a weird moment in how we deal with pop culture for two reasons. One, I understand the Jerry Seinfeld part of it. I do understand that feeling and that frustration when you're talking about a work of art that's trying to do one thing and somebody says, well, why didn't it solve this other problem? You know? Uh, uh, you know, if you're talking about, if you're showing a particular moment in history and somebody goes, well, why didn't you talk about this other part in history? And you want to just go, because that's not what we're dealing with, guys. Like, I'm trying to talk about this one particular thing. You know, I, I, I feel some kind of sympathy to that. Um, you know, when, especially when people are making a period piece and they're talking about one particular issue. And, you know, you have a conversation of, you know, you see it all the time. I, I remember, you know, Spike Lee getting it with, with, pretty much any film he makes now, but it's, you know, when he made Black Klansman, he was like, I'm tackling a very particular topic here. People went, why didn't you talk about this other thing? And he's like, because that's not what this is about. That's another movie. So I get that. But at the same time, bringing up that in a show set in New York, there's really no black representation in Seinfeld. That's a fair criticism that while that shouldn't mean, hey, let's never watch Seinfeld. Let's take it off the television. That's a criticism that, you know, a, a, an artist can be expected to address. And to play it off in that very over-the-top way also sticks with me. So it's one of those moments that I, I, I come back to a lot when we talk about this. And I think with Gone with the Wind, you know, simultaneously I can sit back and say, well, it wasn't a movie about slavery specifically. So it wasn't going, it was going to do that subtly in the fact that we didn't touch on this, but in the fact that it has a, a scene where Scarlet no longer able to, you know, no longer able to exploit slave labor, exploits prison labor and directly addresses the fact that the 13th Amendment allowed for the exploitation of prison labor. Um, it has those moments, but you're right, it doesn't address it more directly. And I kind of both feel like as a work of art, it was doing one particular thing and maybe we should let it do its own thing. But also it does have an obligation to depict the horrors of America's original sin. Listen, I'm very much of the opinion. Every piece, every movie doesn't have to be about everything. A movie can be focused, but this movie is about that. It, yeah. it It's by, by it, it has the black characters it has. But then it also has the conspicuous lack of other black characters in other scenes by like, well, we really can't show field hands. So it's kind of just left to your imagination that someone got whipped and beat to shit making this magical land. But oh, but Mammy and Pork are happy in the house. It's it's just it, it feels like they had to tackle it in a way, because even if you're only focusing on Scarlet, 
there's no way her life is not going to intersect with the slavery of the time. But being a movie made in 1939, they just really, really couldn't. Like, just because of how movies were allowed to be made, not actually tackle it. So it could only rely on these sort of cheap, cliches, stereotype, mammy, like, house slave stuff that they could only do at the time, but is now giving it this worse reception now than it may have, like, it, like it's that thing of, it's not trying to be offensive, but because of the limitations of the time, it now plays offensive. But there's also this really gross moment in the second or third act where there's freed slaves and they're all shown as, as dumb and they're being preyed on by these carpet bagging northerners that are coming in to just pretend to care about them, but they're only there to steal their vote. And I mean, they knew what they were doing. That was not a, a, a scene about history. It felt like to me, that was a scene about, Nobody cares about about the black people. They just want the black vote, and it felt very gross. And and you know, it's it's interesting you say that, Justin, because to me, I looked at that, and while I I certainly think that's a valid interpretation, I also thought about the fact that what it was to me when I looked at that moment, it's it it also reminded me of the fact that it was a little acknowledgement of the fact that one thing we don't want to here in the north, one thing we don't want to deal with about that period of time is we kind of want to pretend like it was Abraham Lincoln went up and said, slavery is inhuman. Everyone is absolutely equal. And here in the North, we <laughs> fix all that. There's absolutely no racism. And only in the South is the bad place. And of course you mentioned the carpetbaggers and that really was a thing. And they're really, you know, people, whether from the South or the North, really, viciously preyed upon people uh you know freed slaves and and the the exploitation and this is something that i think we we struggle with a lot and we we have to acknowledge is that the exploitation and, and abuse of not you know uh, freed slaves and and pretty much any minority group in this country did not end when we resolved the biggest issue you know, right. I, there it is. And, and then that goes across the board. I mean, you know, not to get too off track, but like, we cannot pretend like, you know, the minute, uh, Cesar Chavez, uh, finished, uh, his protest, we went, well, that's it. No more problems <laughs> there. You know, like the, the abuse and exploitation of minorities in this country, um, does not end by just ending the largest atrocities. and. Right. That unfortunately, even when we, you know, we, we can't just say, well, you're free now, figure it out. You know, there's. Yeah, yeah that, that scene felt very much like the, the prison labor thing, maybe too subtly. I don't know, but it did. That just felt to me like another example of just like, oh, the South and just, well, the country in general is just gonna shift how it uses black people and right. i also yeah and i also it, think with that there's something compelling not positive per se but i do think that there is a lot it's it's, it's interesting you mentioned that moment justin i i can't speak to this of course i would love for someone to speak to that moment because it's not just the fact that they have 
and you're correct they play uh the the freed former slaves who are being exploited very dumbly but that is also in response to mammy walking through the crowd and calling them all trash and dismissing them all and wanting to continue serving scarlet uh, as she has always done and that i don't think to me when i watched that and maybe it was intended that way at the time i don't look at that as something symbolic where mammy is 100 percent right i think instead it adds an extra dimension to her character and the truth is the script does not give her a lot to do but there are so many things to the way she delivers lines and the way she embodies certain moments that Hattie McDaniel does that make the character so compelling. That scene sticks out to me. Uh, and also later when she's taking Rhett up the stairs, I mean, uh, taking Olivia to, Olivia to Havland up the stairs. Yes. When Rhett, uh, Scarlet got shoved down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's, you know, she, and, and Mammy is freaking out because she's like, the, the kid died, uh, fell off the horse. And you know, she wants to say, I told him don't do that. But she can't say that. Right. She knew that kid was going to die. But so when she's taking them, it's like you, it's clear that this character is suffering. And the fact that she has, you know, despite being quote unquote freed, she is given zero agency. Mm-hmm. And she just has to deal with the tumultuous life that she is now given because of these two people who talk to her and respond to her as though they were talking to someone they saw as equal, but also give her no agency and, and pay her no mind. And I think that that's a compelling moment. I, I do think there is one good thing in the script. I mean, as you're saying, she's bringing a lot to it, but I do think there is a good element of the script of that, how the movie's playing Scarlet as the South, Rhett as the progressive part of the South, or even he's the North, and that Mammy loves Scarlet. She's more of a mom to her than her actual mother was, and there's this love for her, and this love for Tara, but when Rhett buys her that dress, she wears it underneath her work clothes for the rest of her life. So that there's this element to her of saying like, yeah, I do know what's going on's kind of fucked up, but this is my lot in life and I'm kind of making the best of it. And I kind of wish things were a little more like Rhett's way of things, but also he killed this little girl. Do we have any more? Do you guys have any more thoughts before we... we wrap up or i was just gonna say that like i i like i know that that scarlet and mammy are supposed to have like this loving like faux daughter and mother relationship but just like the way that mammy always comes back at scarlet and the way that scarlet always comes back at her i'm just always i'm surprised that mammy is content with her life just because it's just like scarlet just doesn't give you the time of day she doesn't care about your opinion even though she even though you might think she does deep down and like i think that's another thing like even though the the movie doesn't show blatant abuse of slaves like that's also like just like mental like like psychological abuse from scarlet's part just because like she is literally putting the clothes on your back she's waiting on you hand and foot and like she's smarter than you little child but you're not you're not listening to her well, I, you know, I guess that goes back to the thing of they can't really, like, com- contrast it to, well, if she doesn't suck it up and deal with Scarlet's bullshit, she might have to go work in the fields. Yeah, but, they like, there's really still, can't... but there's still no, like, punishment for her, because, like, she, like, bat, she, like, com- like combats Scarlet, she, like, batmouths her, she, like, she, she, like, she is, a, like, a very good character, but she, like, she, there's no, like, repercussions for her words at all that's probably just the way they're going about that 
for as much as these Southerners talk, um, they really can't do anything without Mammy. So True. they kind of just tolerate it because, well, she does take care of everything we can't do because, um, again, in a way of the movie trying to get into it, they do make a lot of Scarlet, like kind of the sacrifice Scarlet has to make working in the fields to make Tara great again. Yeah, it's just one of, it's, I don't know, it's just like the way a lot of the stuff in the movie is like, there's stuff there that kind of helps its cause, but then there's just so much cloudiness in that of the stuff it can't do, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah, no, I, I I don't disagree with the stuff that, yeah, the Mammy stuff isn't great. It's not, like, it, it just isn't. But there are, like, the movie's its own worst enemy, but also, like, it's also got some smart ways to kind of try to subvert some of this stuff you know I, I mean it's it was the weird thing watching this movie of just like okay okay this is kind of making sense oh okay huh it's an interesting choice right. yeah so one one last thing that i wanted to remark on is how much of my favorite movies i saw in this movie <laughs> oh yeah. yeah oh yeah oh yeah it's, the next, like, 30 years of Westerns that I love so much. I mean, 1939 movies, typically, when, when, you'll, when you'll watch movies from the 30s, they feel older. Like, Stagecoach or The Grapes of Wrath. Love John Ford, but his movies at this point felt older. Grapes of Wrath immediately feels like Lawrence of Arabia. Like, something that came out 20, 30 years later. And mm -hmm. it's it was sort of astounding to me just in, in the way it, it feels it's something intangible about that. Maybe it's the scale. Maybe it's been just preserved better. I don't know, but the, in the way that it felt out of its time, even though it was bound to its time and its issues, the way it felt out of its time and its presentation was very impactful, but like Titanic, I got from this so much. Oh yeah. Um, have you seen Phoenix? It's no. a German film from like the last Been 10 years or so. And it's this relationship between two people. That's this metaphor for post-war Germany. I mean, that feels like gone with the wind. Mm -hmm. It's, it's reaches are so broad and in so many of my favorite things that it is, it is sort of undeniably something I mean, worth. Sh shit. Mike said it to me. He texted it to me the other day. It, it Rhett and Scarlet, you could even see in movies like fucking Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. 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 You know, you, you know, it's funny you talk about that, the, the, the wide reach this movie has. Um, we recorded Star Wars the other day, and everybody talks about Star Wars being the movie that broke Hollywood and everyone's trying to get bigger, bigger, bigger. Gone with the Wind is kind of that too. Yeah. Right. But like, cause once TV comes into play, Every studio's trying to make their Gone with the Wind, their big, colorful thing that you can't do on TV, because, as everyone likes to say, adjusted for inflation, ticket sales-wise, this is still the most successful movie of all time. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it, it is, in like, in, like, every way possible, this movie is just influential in ways that we're still even, like, just talking about, like, oh yeah, this thing too is influential. Like fucking Lando, like Lando right. Calrissian is like it's spitting image, which I guess is ultimately the argument for it being in the National Film Registry. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I, I I agree. There, it's it's in the DNA of so many films. And I I also think that there's something to, you know, as we were addressing, you know, the, the things that it does touch on, and the things that if you're coming to it with the intent to take something away from it, you will. You know, it's possible to watch this thing completely shut down, and it's possible, like with any of these films, and this is something that we're dealing with with the show and why Tom and I agreed we're going to come at this with the vantage point of going in with the idea that these films have value, you know, not trying to do one of these, one of these citizen Kane's overrated, you know, those things <laughs> instead come into value. Because I think that even if you start from that vantage point, you like a movie more than you would have. If you went in with this crossed arm thing of, all right, you're supposed to be so good. Show me what you got with this movie. Like it's impossible not to look at it and see that it is a film talking about the horrors of war. You know, I mean, the leg amputation scene and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's impossible not to see the influence on other films like Mrs. Miniver. And like Tom saying, it's in the DNA of so many movies. A and also, in truth, you know, we barely got a chance to touch on it because there's just so much. But that ending and its ambiguity, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who watch that and go, oh, she's going to survive. She's going to rebuild Tara. She's going to be a survivor. And I look at that scene as almost identical to another Vivian Lee role, which is Streetcar Named Desire, which is. Oh, she's so delusional. Right. Like, this is very Sunset Boulevard. Like, this man just left you because you can't let go of the past. And all you're thinking of is, I gotta go back to Tara. Reclaim her. Like, roots. that's so tragic. That's yeah. so, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. The truth of it is, uh, it has its problems. There's no denying it has its problems. And I think that the reason, like Tom says, that this is in the registry is because it's just, there's so much there good and bad there's so much to take from it and i think that i i i certainly don't begrudge anybody who watches it and says that's not for me or somebody who again tom and i have have uh, you know our star ratings on this film may be very different but we both watch it and take something away from it because it's impossible not to it's also just impossible not to talk about it afterwards, right? You can't just like turn it on a, on a sunday spend right. 3 hours watching it and then be like all right like next movie, like like get on with your day. It's like you want to show it to your kids and be like, "So what did you think? What did everyone think? What are your thoughts?" Right. Well, Justin Lapita, thank you guys so much for for not only uh, joining us uh, for picking this film and 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 making sure we did this early on in the show because uh, it was one of those ones that we did not think anyone was going to pick and we thought we were really going to have to fight for. And I'm so glad you guys came on and and put the thought into this too. Um, you know, this was certainly not, this was certainly not something where I think either of us felt unchallenged in where we stood on this film beforehand, which is, I, I don't know about you, Tom, but that's like my favorite kind of episode when we, when we come away thinking maybe what we thought before was not necessarily, uh, the, the right interpretation. Yes. But thank you very much for giving us, uh, as maybe not as hefty as Gone with the Wind, but quite the hefty uh, podcast episode, because uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about, and uh, I thought this conversation was pretty great for um, a movie that I think I'm safe in saying I'm on the lower end of the totem pole of liking it. <laughs> but you watched it, but you watched it, and you can say that. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I watched it. It, it was a, uh, it was a uh, it was a guillotine hanging over my head the entire, my entire life as a film fan of just like, well, I'm going to have to get to it. I got to get to it. I can't talk about it until I see it. Yes, Spike Lee, I watched the beginning of Black Klansman, but I can't fucking say if I uh, agree with you or not. But now I finally have seen it. And uh, Spike, this is an official call out. I'm coming for you. <laughs>
But no, and I, I agree. And and the truth is, you know, no matter your your rating of it, no one can say from this discussion, it's very clear you you not only watched it, you watched it with an open mind. And that's all that we're trying to do with this show in general is to just encourage people to watch these things. If they've been inducted into the registry, they are part of the American cultural landscape. They are deemed historically significant, aesthetically significant. Let's grapple with that. And I, I'm so glad that you guys joined us to grab with that you were you were the perfect guest for this and i'm so glad that you guys joined us oh thank oh you oh my god thank you <laughs> we're honored they like us they really like us <laughs> i have a hard time i think talking about this movie and like as sort of like the weird historical footprints in our culture and and i knew this was going to be one of our challenges one of the things that gravitated uh, me towards this i had a project in college that forced me to look at a movie that is incredibly controversial and yet the focus was more on this cinematography and more of the film production aspects and it would ultimately be like well you're promoting the racism components of that and it's like no no no. we really need to stress that what we're talking about here you know is important in in some way I don't think we're either any of us are really representatives and can speak whether or not we accomplished what we did. Um, I feel good about what we've done. Um, the conversation that we had, I hope it um, resonates with people. I think this was probably the biggest challenge we faced so far, not just because of how do we talk about it, but also let's face it thus far, we've pretty much liked all the movies we've talked about universally. Right. And I, I think that in this case, you know, obviously like I, we acknowledged in the episode, Tom said he was on the lower end of the totem pole for this one. I was, you know, in, in, in a different place on this one. But I, I think we were all able to talk about the movie for what it was. And that's, you know, all we can do. And and I think it's also important not to shy away from these things. I mean, Kyle, you were talking about a movie that you did in school. I'm, I'm assuming uh, it was D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. And interestingly enough, if you watch the documentary they did about the registry, um, These Amazing Shadows, um, John Singleton is the director who pushed for Birth of a Nation to be in the registry. And he says, because he doesn't think these things should be shied away from, we should confront the flaws of this country and the original sin of this country and how it is intertwined with our media, instead of pretending that it is entirely divorced of that. And I, I hope we did that. And I hope people, you know, took something away from it. And maybe some people decide to engage with the work. As someone who's coming to this new, who's had it, hanging over him his whole life as a film guy, film fan. And with the just recent reappraisal, constant re- talking about it being a Confederate monument or whatever, I just think the movie's more complicated than people want to say. It's not the boogeyman under under your bed waiting to get you. It's a part of history. It's something that needs to be wrangled with. You need to contend with it, deal with it. It it might make you a better person being able to wrangle with something that's complicated and being able to say, well, I saw it, I respect it, I maybe even like it, and acknowledge its place as a relic of a bygone era uh, with bygone sensibilities. Outside of this show, Viewing Life, you're a big B-movie guy, a big genre guy. Um, yeah. I know that, uh, you know, you've you've recently, fairly recently gotten into the, the giallo subgenre, the Italian horror guys. I mean, to watch those films, uh, you certainly have to be able to 
reconcile with uh, some, you know, plenty problematic elements in those. I just watched the documentary about Lucio Fulci and they get in. I mean, even the people that worked with them are like, yeah, Lucio, he liked women, but he also didn't like women. And, you know, they get into how maybe a lot of the stuff in the movies is him working through shit that he was dealing with some of the things he was contending with it may not necessarily be the auteur theory but a lot of filmmakers there's i mean decisions are being made for a reason and things aren't clean all the time things aren't always nice or are always perfect and it's honestly more interesting to watch something messy because it's more human it's more honest it opens your mind up because then you have to wrangle with the shit inside of yourself Instead of just constantly getting patted on the head saying, oh, you're a good liberal. You're good. You you deserve to live in Williamsburg this weekend. It's fine. We talked about the anti-hero thing. You know, you mentioned the anti-hero thing before. I, I don't understand how people can wrangle with watching art about anti-heroes and murderers and serial killers and, you know, all this shit. And then have an actual shit fit when they watch a movie set during the civil war that may not be as progressive as they are now that everything that isn't like them has to be burned at the stake which is kind of how we got to the place uh where we are now of not actually wrangling all of the problems they were dealing with during the civil war and letting it fester and not dealing with it during reconstruction and letting it fester and not dealing with the kkk re reappraisal after the birth of a nation and then letting it fester and there's no good that's going to come from just ignoring the past. It's it's silly, it's childish, and it, it doesn't do anybody any good. I mean, I, I'm certainly of the opinion, look, you know, uh, I appreciate Lupita uh, making the point that she grew up, a, a you know, uh, a person of color in, in Texas and how that affects one's point of view. And, and I certainly, you know, as we saw in that HBO Max introduction and as we saw in that panel, I am not going to sit here and say how a black film goer should feel about Gone with the Wind. I know what I feel when I when I watch say Babes in Arms and I know what I feel there but I'm certainly not going to tell anyone how they should feel and I'm also not going to tell anyone who thinks they might be, you know, uh, adversely affected by watching it, you know, that every human being should watch the film. I only think that as I I said at the, the start that to talk about a movie you should watch it that's that's all i'm asking you know that that's all i'm asking of this show and that's all we're doing is is if you are going to talk about a work watch it engage with it grapple with it and don't don't shy away from that if that's the kind of thing you want to engage in and that's you know and and look it has its pros and cons you know tom you were uh you know again to go back to the genre thing briefly like you are a person who watches these films and takes them in the proper context and and understands that these are not an endorsement of certain points of view, but uh, you know, you've certainly dealt with, and we don't need to name names of now defunct publications, but you've certainly had to deal with situations where some of the other people who are fans of these same films are maybe taking a very different takeaway from them. And yeah. you kind of have to go, I really like this. Wait, why do you like this? Yeah. And that's, that's certainly difficult. If you don't want to watch the thing, that's fine, but don't tell everybody that it shouldn't be, it shouldn't exist. Let it exist. Let people let people come to it if they want to come to it. 
it is different than a Confederate monument because, well, you have to go find Gone with the Wind. It's not looming over you when you leave your house. So, guys, you know, obviously with our criteria, you know, your movie can't be, uh, or movie's got to be at least 10 years old. has to be an American film. What film would you add to the registry? I was thinking about it, and I had a couple things that I might have picked. Um, and then in response to this, this selection is kind of in response to not just the film, but the whole conversation around it and the broader conversation. And in part because I mentioned watching Babes in Arms and that repugnant sequence in the middle. And I was thinking about how do we deal with the shameful parts of our history? And the fact that, you know, as I acknowledge in the episode, whether it stays or not, um, that I, I grew up my whole life, I knew Turkey in the Straw, the song. You know, I, I had no idea that its roots were in a minstrel show. And even then, in doing some digging, you know, how murky uh, that is in terms of which came first, the, the melody or the lyrics. How do we deal with that? And and the fact that, you know, we're going to talk next season about Duck Soup and, uh, you know, Groucho Marx invokes the title of a song with a with a with a an offensive word in the title. I remember when Tom and I watched it for a, a different podcast. Uh, that was a jarring moment from well apparently that song was sung by Paul Robeson and stuff's been lost in translation and I think that the fact that we have put away so many elements problematic elements of our culture means that now we don't have the tools to grapple with them. On the other hand, when these problematic things are presented without context, they can be misunderstood and exploited by people with bad intentions and with bigotry in their hearts. So I was thinking about how do we deal with that? How do we grapple with that legacy? And how do we make ourselves aware of and, and sort of preserve those, those kind of shameful elements of our history in a way that does not endorse them? And I thought there was a film that does that really well. A, a film, a fairly recent film that it, it depicts minstrel performances and depicts the degrading nature of them. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Tom knows where I'm going now. Uh, yeah. which is that I, I think that Spike Lee's Bamboozled, uh, which was recently released by the Criterion Collection, is this amazing wrestle with racist depictions in media and how it relates to how we deal with racist media in present day. I mean, and, and uh, how dehumanizing these portrayals were. It shows the process. It, it, it has a sequence that walks you through uh, Savion Glover applying the makeup and then shows the crowd reactions and it is this network-esque satire of contemporary media that also seeks to preserve and depict the inhumanity of the minstrel show. And it is uh, the only way, I think, to properly depict what that medium was like without falling into something like babes in arms that is unsettling and skin crawling. So I, I truly believe that Bamboozled, both as a great film, but also as a record of this particular thing, uh, should be in the registry. I figured that Mike was going to be um, making a pick along those lines, dealing with the deeper racial elements and the sort of controversy surrounding Gone with the Wind and something that would, ta would deal with that in its own way. So I went and looked um, in areas more in line with the text, the structure, the historical epic 
aspect of the movie, the poisoned love triangle element of the story, a movie that almost ironically looks at an era and a time at, during its so-called heyday, and the character is thinking it's this heyday, um, but by the masterful touch of the filmmaker showing there never was a heyday. It was just the Wild West where you guys were able to crush people and enrich yourselves off of blood money. Um, how the central love triangle isn't actually a love triangle. It's something deeper, darker, and more upsetting, more American, very American-centric, the way these this love triangle thing sort of happens. This movie has its... Um, connections to another movie not one that'll ever be on the national film registry because in very sp explicit ways it's referencing Jean-Luc Godard's contempt so the movie I'm picking is uh Martin Scorsese's Casino I just felt like there's no way Marty didn't have Gone with the Wind in mind making Casino the way it very elaborately delves into this world shows you the process shows you over a long period of time, it's slow rot until it's left with it's left nothing but a husk of what it used to be, and also an ending that says, "Well, it's not gonna get better. It's just going to change into something more squeaky clean on the surface, but just as dark and destructive on the in the exterior in the interior, the same way Gone with the Wind ends with." Well, Scarlet's not actually going to make things better for herself. She's just like the South receding into this fantasy notion of of a happy ending. Maybe I'm doing some uh, Pepe Sylvia connecting of the dots that aren't there, but um, I think Casino, um, it's Marty. I mean, Marty's most of his movies should end up being in this registry. I think Casino is kind of a uh, pretty good if you were a, had like 12 hours to devote to a double feature. Uh, Gone with the Wind and Casino, I think would be interesting uh, parallels to each other. I wish you could see the grin on my face right now because I, I, in doing this show, I think there's nothing I enjoy more than when I'm following you and I'm listening to the description, I'm listening to lead up, and I'm almost certain I know where it's going and that it veers completely in another direction and I'm, I'm completely off guard. And I, I'm just, that's, that's great. I love that. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Justin Lupita for joining us. You can follow them on social media. Justin is at JustJustin42, and Lupita is Pita underscore bread, Pita with two A's. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at RagingBull1990. And you can follow me on social media as well at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.